Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Joining us now is Tom Kennedy, head of fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank, who did work for the Fed for uh, many years, so has an inside look from that perspective. Tom, can we just start with what happened on Friday that this fund saw such a huge decline? Absolutely. Good morning. Uh, I think you're battling against a couple of issues here. People coming around to the realization that recession probabilities are rising, growth concerns are are emanating, and finding themselves in a credit credit risky product in the leverage loan market. And then also you have over the life of this expansion, very, very long expansion, tourists or people that are not commonly used to the leverage loan market, finding themselves in a place where they may or may not be so comfortable with the credit risk that they are exposed to. Now in the, uh, the Federal Reserve's financial stability report, the quote is business sector debt relative to gross domestic product is historically high, and there are signs of deteriorating credit standards. Leverage loans, junk bonds, now in excess of $2 trillion. Is this as good as it gets? I think the best of these markets, Pim, to your point, are behind us. I really do. If we try to just drill in a little bit on what the Fed is looking at, what are they really trying to showcase to us? The leverage loan market is now bigger than the high yield market. That market historically has been left for private credit. Now we're in a place where the demand for floating rate product over the last 10 years has driven people to this asset class. And I think a good amount of education is necessary. What is a leverage loan? It's a loan to a business that already either has a lot of debt or is of, of poor credit quality. That's a default risk type of product. I'm not saying default risks are high. I'm saying these are the credit quality natures of these these companies. And then looking at the quality, what do I think the Fed is really looking at underneath the hood of the leverage loan market? Covenant light, ubiquitous at this point. 80% of leverage loan debt is... Just tell people what does covenant light yeah. really mean? Good, good point, Pim. So uh, a covenant light issuer says they are leaving the parameters for the lending of this money to a company strictly in the hands of the company. The company can do what they like with, with that debt. There are no restrictions on what they can do with the debt. Right, so they can basically uh, pay off private equity owners, they can lever up further, they can borrow more money, and there yeah. isn't necessarily any kind of sign off that the bar that the lenders have to do. I, you know, I wanna go back to something you yep. were saying, which is there are all these tourists who got in through things like ETFs, which are liquid, even though the underlying isn't as liquid by any means. Um, why are they being triggered now? Because the Fed has been issuing warnings in this area for a while. It's hard to say that it's just this, yeah. but there hasn't been a major credit quality issue. So why are they fleeing right now? I think the main reason they're fleeing now is that you are finally seeing cracks in the credit market. The volatility we've been seeing in the equity market over the year hasn't really corresponded to much concern in credit markets. However, since the turn of this quarter, the fourth quarter of 2018, we're starting to see credit spreads widening now. And in when uh, investors are opening up their statements in the leveraged loan space, they are seeing not that steady increase in valuation. They're actually learning that those products can go down in value. So I think you're seeing an outflow just in response to a mark-to-market type of, of environment where credit spreads are, are 
they're widening. We have to acknowledge that. Just to help me understand something, because I was always under the impression that junk bonds or leveraged loans would be issued by companies that were in dire straits, that needed the money, that couldn't access the AAA or you know the yeah. corporate credit worthiness space. But that's really not who's been doing all the yeah. issuing, right? You're right. I think the comparable market to leverage loans is the high yield market. Let's assume you're a company and you have an option. You can go to the high yield market. You might see some covenants or restrictions on what you can do with those funds. And your funding status might be higher than what you see in the leveraged loan market. And so naturally, a company is going to migrate to the market where they get the most favorable um, lending or borrowing terms that they see. And that's, I really do think what we've seen over the last five to 10 years, a flocking of companies to this market, it's the best terms of trade for them. So let's play this out. Sure. How do you think the leveraged loan market performs over the next six to 12 months? We've seen some uh, firms recommending loans over bonds because they've actually been underperforming. Mm -hmm. um, but what you're saying sounds pretty dire. <laughs> so so. I, I don't mean to sound dire. I think what you just did, Lisa, is how you need to think about this asset class. Do I prefer high yield fixed rate bonds or the leveraged loan market, which has a floating rate component to it? That's the trade. I don't think leveraged loans are going to outperform high yield over the next 12 months. Actually, we, this trade we're talking about dates back to us to June. We removed leveraged loan overweights relative to high yield in June. So when do you, when do you put it back on? What are you looking for? I'm, I'm gonna, I need to see the credit cycle actually play through. I actually favor duration at this point. I don't think when I'm, when I'm a fixed income investor deciding, do I want to have interest rate exposure the likelihood that rates will come down, I want to own that option at this point. So the leverage loan for me is all you're playing is that credit spreads will remain very tight. My bias is credit spreads widen and that risk-free rates come down. In that world, I prefer a longer duration investment. How bad are the losses going to get in loans? The loan, the loan sell-off and trying to identify what a bogey is for defaults, I, I, I don't even pretend to be the, the perfect expert in doing that. I think when you're an investor, you have to recognize that deterioration in quality is happening in the leveraged loan market. It's been happening for years. If you don't think rates are going to rise very much, this is not the asset class that you should expect to outperform relative to high yield. Calling a default cycle, which I know you're looking at me and you want me to do. Yes, please. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I, I really I can't. I don't think anyone's going to be able to do that or time that well, Lisa. Thanks very much for being with us. As always, Tom Kennedy, he is the head of fixed income strategy for JP Morgan Private Bank. I want to bring in Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and economics for Bloomberg. And of course, still with us is John Authors, Senior Markets uh, Correspondent, Columnist, Editor, everything under the sun here at Bloomberg. Therese, uh, I'd love to start with you. What was your uh, sense? What was the most sort of newsworthy thing uh, that Prime Minister May said? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to note was the atmospherics uh, in the House today. I mean, May didn't get out two sentences before um, there were jeers and uh, she was being laughed at and derided. And that really speaks to, you know, a prime minister whose power has just waned dramatically. Um, the most newsworthy thing, she's not promising that there will be any substantial renegotiation. The European Union has been very clear that they're not going to open the legally binding part of this agreement around the Irish backstop. What she is sort of suggesting is that there might be some additional reassurances 
that could I'm now extrapolating that could sort of take the part of um, uh, additions to the political declaration. There may be some sort of side assurances. She's also um, said that she would find ways to empower the commons to uh, increase the democratic legitimacy and and allow the commons to place obligations on government. All of that has to do with um, reassuring uh, skeptics that Britain will be able to find a way out of this backstop. But, you know, really, she's saying this is the deal. Look at the alternatives. You're not going to like any of them. Give it a chance. But I know that I don't have the votes to do this tomorrow. John, just to reiterate, the Irish backstop that we've been learning about is basically an insurance policy that the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic would remain open. As open as it currently is. Yes, that's what I mean. In other words, there would be no change to the... It's an insu- it's an insurance policy for the Republic of Ireland, for the South of Ireland, for those who uh, passionately believe in the process that was started uh, under Senator Mitchell, Tony Blair, and the various Irish players twenty years ago. Uh, that the uh, that the uh, board that the trade within the island of Ireland will continue as it currently is. I saw a very interesting comment from Guy Verhofstadt. Uh, saying uh, a, a few minutes ago before I came to the studio, saying that uh, whatever happens, the EU will not let Ireland down. And that is the impasse that we have, that uh, in the event that we don't have some kind of wonderful new technology involving laser beams and and chips in, embedded in people's foreheads or, or whatever to enable... Um, a border to remain as soft as it currently is while still having Britain outside the customs union, you will have this uh, this arrangement that will, will carry on. Given that yeah. most people assume that the uh, the high-tech ability to, uh, to uh, run a border where most people can just drive straight through like on an easy pass on the George right. Washington Bridge, while most people assume that that's not going to be possible, this backstop remains. And while the backstop remains, Britain remains within the customs union without having a vote over it. And that is unappealing uh, at a democratic at a political level. I just want to give some market response because we are seeing a market reaction. The pound continuing to decline versus the dollar uh, session lows and Mm. uh, at the lowest levels since 2017, Mm. uh, April 2017. So you you have to think people are taking this as the likelihood of a no deal Brexit, a hard Brexit that will have material impact on the economy is increasing. You're also seeing your UK bond yields decline, a a sort of suggestion that growth Mm. expectations going forward are declining. Therese, come on in here. I mean, is today sort of a landmark moment in terms of basically increasing the chances of a no-deal Brexit and showing there really isn't a political leader who can carry this through on the UK side? I mean, there's no question we're at a watershed moment. I think, you know, if, if uh, Donald Trump's modus operandi has been, you know, deny, 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 Theresa May has been delay, 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 and today she's delayed further, but there's only, you know, so much road left uh, for her. Um, in terms of the, um, you know, economy, she said very clearly in, in her Commons address today, look, those of you that are advocating leaving without a deal, be upfront with people. That is going to have costs. And she's quite right mm. that the, you know, hardline Brexiters who say, look, we we can trade on World Trade Organization terms, we'll be fine. And, uh, you know, the question is fine in in what time period? Because every, you know, economic study on this and 
including the Bank of England and the government and the and various economic think tanks have come and said that is going to be painful in the short term 10, 15 years. Well, there's also a report, and John, you can come in on this yeah. as well, and Therese, maybe you could give us a sort of bird's eye view of what it's like in uh, the UK, because the government, the UK government, has already told supermarkets uh, such as Asda, Tesco, Sainsbury, Morrison, they've actually spoken to those supermarket groups, asking them to stock as much as possible in their warehouses in case the UK crashes out of the European Union without a deal. Well, first, <laughs> go ahead, John. I, I, go ahead, John. I, 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 uh, I used to work for the Financial Times, which is famously manically pro-Remain. I voted Remain myself. That kind of story bothers me as a very strong pro-Remainer in that it has it has a whiff of the pre-Y2K argument. It also has a whiff of what. The Leave campaign uh, accused uh, the Remain campaign of doing during the campaign, which is Project Fear. Um, I'm prepared to believe that a no deal, bre well, I do believe that a no deal Brexit would be a very, very bad idea for the UK. Uh, and to the extent that the UK matters to everybody else, it would be a bad deal for everybody else. Um, th it doesn't play well, I suspect, in the provinces, in that it smacks of the elite trying to get everybody scared of trying to play to fears that may not be totally justified. Yeah, I mean, I think John's just put his finger on There's There's the optics of those kinds of messages. And then there's a the reality, you know, should we really be stocking up? Should supermarkets be stocking up? And the reality is that a lot of it is in the gift of the EU. Europe could actually um, impose, you know, impose the letter of the law such that there are such backups of lorries that, you know, there may be certain supplies that would be um, short, you know, in short supply for a while while new supply chains are being sourced and, and things are being worked out. The reality is probably that there will be some last minute um, agreements to ensure that the worst of the emergencies, and we're talking sort of medicines more than mm. um, Kit Kat bars, uh, is averted. But it is, as somebody did a study, it said a two-minute delay at the Dover-Calais border would lead to sort of 17 miles of backed-up lorry. So I mean, there is some truth to to all of this. One well, the hopes, pound, just to let you know, know, Therese, just to let everyone know that the pound has broken 126. It now trades 125.89. When I first came to the States in 1985 as an exchange student, it was 1.105. Yeah, so we're heading back to it. <laughs> Teresa, you're getting young as you speak. Yeah, Teresa, exactly. I, I want to I go back to something you're talking about when you're saying that, the, you know, more than, more than Kit Kat bars, we're talking about medicine. How bad could this get? I mean, when, when we hear uh, Prime Minister May talking about making provisions for a no-deal Brexit, are we talking about stockpiling medicine and uh, having, you know, enough corn to, to sort of uh, feed out to people? Uh, you know, in, in a sort of warlike situation? Is that what we're talking about? Well, I think medicine, yes, to some extent, because some medicines have to be refrigerated. Refrigerated trucks can, you know, only have a, a, a certain amount of time. They can, um, you know, they can keep things refrigerated. So the NHS, the National Health Service, the state-run uh, health service here has uh, been told to uh, keep certain supplies uh, in reserve. So I think, yes, that, I mean, in terms of corn and people sort of starving, I mean, that would seem wildly overblown. Um, and as I said, I, 
I would imagine that the EU would sensibly put in to play certain emergency measures, certain uh, temporary uh, kind of equivalency recognition of EU uh, of UK rules and regulations, so that we're not going to see a sort of cataclysmic um, scenario. Uh, but you know, that's not to say that a No Deal exit isn't a very scary place to be, and is only a, a sort of small minority in the House of Commons. But they're very vocal, and they're within Theresa May's own party that are advocating that. John, uh, just mm. to come in on the the sort of pick up on what Therese was talking about and yeah. the domestic political change. Do you think that that we should be ready for a new prime minister in the United Kingdom? Well, that's a further problem, and this is actually perversely um, Theresa May's strongest card at this moment. Um, you've heard various people uh, within the Conservative ranks are trying to position for a leadership campaign, but it's not as though um, either the party in the country or certainly the parliamentary party would be wild about coalescing behind Boris Johnson. Dominic Raab, who recently stood down as Brexit minister, as I gather is also interested in a leadership bid, he made this disastrous soundbite where he admitted that he hadn't realised until the last few <laughs> weeks uh, how important the Dover-Calais link was to British trade, you know, uh, bringing um, sarcastic comments that he's only just realised we're an island. Yes. Thank you. Uh, the, <laughs> the geography lessons continue. Yeah. John Authors, thank you. Senior Editor for Bloomberg Markets. Also, our thanks to Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. And I want to turn our attention to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which have basically been demolished. Uh, basically, a tractor has run over them and then a giant has come and stomped on them. And then everybody turned and looked and said, we told you so because they lost more than 60% of their value or more. Uh, joining us now is somebody who actually uh, is supportive of the technology behind Bitcoin and, uh, and the others. And that is blockchain. Ron Quaranta is founder and chairman of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance, joining us here in our 1130 studio. So Ron, what do you make of the recent uh, cryptocurrency route? Good morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, there are a couple of things going on that we talk about on a regular basis. I think we're clearly seeing some of the sell-off that's pulling some of the froth out of an overvalued marketplace. And I think part of that is institutional money that's kind of being taken a bit off the table. It's important to realize there's a lot of OTC trading that isn't reported directly. So I think a lot of that is precipitating some of that price decline. And in particular, the past month and change, given some regulatory action, the SEC uh, sanctioning a unregistered exchange, uh, two specific token offerings, for example, that had settled with the SEC because they sold unregistered securities, that kind of regulatory overhang has kind of clouded the, the, the marketplace. People have kind of fled for the doors. Uh, eight, eight Bitcoin down something like 80%, uh, others down well over 90%. Um, that doesn't diminish the overarching uh, value proposition that we believe for the technology. And quite honestly, crypto assets. In our mind, this is part of that evolution that needs to happen to be part of the world that we know. Ron, just to explain to people, what is the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance? And give an example, if you can, of a project or something specific that is being worked on to take advantage 
of this technology? Sure. So the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance is a nonprofit trade association based here in New York with a mission to guide and promote comprehensive adoption of blockchain technology across our member base. And our members are banks and brokers and hedge funds and institutional investors, law firms, accounting practices, really trying to understand the ecosystem of both blockchain and, and crypto assets. One of the biggest models that we've seen that's really going into production, leveraging blockchain technology is supply chain. When you look at shipping companies like Maersk working with IBM, when you look at uh, banking and trade finance institutions leveraging blockchain to audit and manage the shipment of goods overseas in a cost-effective, more efficient way, that's fundamentally evolving how supply chain and trade management works. Okay, well, I got I to gotta just be really honest here. When you start talking about cryptocurrencies and taking the currency away from a nation, that's pretty sexy. That's like, you know, rogue kind of actors kind of creating their whole own ecosystem in the web. And, you know, and when you talk about supply chain management, it's not. And uh, I have to wonder whether blockchain has moved from a catchphrase that got everybody's attention and people just threw money at it to something that's more of a show me show me the money proposition and there's actually less interest in just throwing money at the development of new applications here. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that over the past two, three years. We had lots of money thrown at radical new solutions that were leveraging blockchain technology. If you and I put together a PowerPoint, we probably would have gotten $10 million to, to create a new startup. But Why now, didn't you call me? I know. <laughs> but it's become show us why it makes sense. It's become show us why this should go to market. And I think the interesting part of this is the stuff that you don't hear about in the news. We all hear the mania about Bitcoin and uh, price declines. The work that's happening behind the scenes. Our members are part of some of that. Uh, some of the largest technology providers, IBM, Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, leveraging blockchain technology to bring to slowly bring solutions that make how we do what we do more efficient, more effective, more um, more cost effective broadly across the entirety of the ecosystem. Are banks interested in blockchain technology because they see it as the next version of SWIFT, which is the international payment system that is currently being used? Yeah, we don't, I don't know a bank that's not, a large bank that's not looking at blockchain technology in some way, shape or form for a couple of reasons. One is the function of banks needs to evolve. It's a very friction filled world. You and I were discussing that a bit earlier from everything from payments to clearing and settlement is really expensive really you know, uh, friction-filled is what we call it. So most major banks are looking at leveraging blockchain technology to evolve how they do what they do, how they transfer funds, how they manage client accounts, even things like KYC AML. They're going to be leveraging blockchain technology to manage identity for their clients. And when you look at the costs of KYC AML, that makes sense to, to leverage a cost-efficient technology and cost-effective technology to make that better. Have the applications in the financial sector been overstated with respect to blockchain? I wouldn't say they've been overstated. I think we all waited with bated breath and then realized some of the stuff's not coming to market quickly enough. And the old joke is in 2016, it was all going to be in production. And I've been in the blockchain space for, for several years now, and we're still waiting for that big production ready moment. I don't think it's been overstated. I think the expectations were a bit inflated. Um, and what we're beginning to see now is real solutions that don't get the news. They're boring stuff that we don't talk about in the, the sexy news cycle of crypto assets, for example. But the solutions are, are coming to market behind the scenes. Now, you mentioned just to do the acronym explanation when you said KYC and yes. AML. This is things like anonymity and confidentiality. 
Yeah, when you engage financial relationships, most financial organizations are required by law across know the Know your customer. Know your customer and anti-money laundering requirements in each of those instances at each financial institution is, it's expensive to go through the process of confirming that I have I can do certain transactions with a financial institution. Imagine a blockchain solution that allows that to happen more quickly, more efficiently, perhaps shared across an ecosystem of parties, uh, and you begin to understand the possibilities of security an identity leveraging blockchain technology. So can you give us an example of a space where blockchain has revolutionized something? So I think the supply chain thing, I, I come back to that simply because when you look at the stuff that's quote unquote in production, um, shipping companies right now leveraging um, supply chain, uh, leveraging blockchain to manage supply chain for tracking organic goods. So you might have seen the uh, lettuce that had been um, the romaine, the romaine lettuce uh, yeah. scare uh, and challenges there. Uh, shipping companies are beginning to use blockchain. I think Walmart, for example, now leverages blockchain to track provenance of their food for example. Um, and that stuff's happening right now. Um, I think healthcare, interestingly, there's some look at healthcare around how do you manage digital health records. I think we're a bit early in that space, but if you think about the mess that healthcare records are globally, blockchain solutions really are, are being uh, aimed at, how do we make that better for the patient? Thanks very much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Ron Quaranta, he is the founder and the chairman of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance, talking about uh, new technology to perhaps streamline the movement of money around the world and also... Or lettuce. Or lettuce, indeed. Nothing wrong with that. All right, let's turn our attention now to the world of healthcare with Scott Flanders. He is the chief executive and board member of eHealth, and he's here to tell us about consolidation in the healthcare industry, plus an update on enrollments in the Affordable Care Act. Scott Flanders, thank you very much for being with us. Is the ACA enrollment levels, are they, are they still climbing, or have people decided to take a rest and try to figure out what premiums they can afford to pay before signing up? Well, that's definitely the challenge, and I uh, appreciate you bringing uh, focus to it because the premiums are up uh, much less than they have been the last few years. And so there has been stabilization uh, in the individual market, uh, and particularly if uh, consumers receive subsidies, it's very affordable. More insurance companies are offering plans this year than last year. But even with all of that good news, the reality is uh, fewer consumers are signing up uh, for the 2019 coverage year than they have in past years. You know, I'm interested in the fact that Barack Obama, former president, who came up with ACA, just tweeted a less than an hour ago, no jump shots, no ferns, no memes, not this time. I'm going to give it to you straight. If you need health insurance for 2019, the deadline to get covered is December 15th. And he was pitching this. Why do you think or what do you think it would take to reignite this program in a meaningful way? And on the flip side, I mean, is this sort of the, the last gasps of it before it gets demolished? I mean, where are we with this? Well, look, it, it's down uh, double-digit enrollments are down uh, you know, 10 12% from prior year. So it's not collapsing. It is shrinking. There are more, more alternatives this year. So the uh, extension of short-term duration uh, from 90 days to a full year, and in some cases multiple years, has been a nice alternative and very attractive to many of our consumers. 
who can't afford the rising premiums and the very high deductibles of Obamacare. You know, we, we, we do surveys all the time of our consumers, and 40% don't even know that the open enrollment period ends on December 15th. So I appreciate President Obama uh, tweeting that deadline. Now, uh, Scott, previously uh, you have served in a variety of, of positions, mainly in, in the media industry. Now that you're in the healthcare uh, business, just tell us a little bit about eHealth because you're more of a you're a marketplace, so you get a different view of what is going on. No, that's right. Uh, we're completely neutral uh, for the consumer, so we're like Expedia is in travel. Uh, eHealth is the same for health insurance. We have over a thousand people and every day our mission is to try to get every American with affordable health insurance. And that's a simple mission, but it's very hard to execute because it's complex. It's a shopping experience that consumers only do once a year. It's not their favorite, most fun thing to do, uh, but yet it's important and has consequences if they get it wrong. And so we're there to be a comparison site. Uh, we also have call centers to help consumers that need to speak to someone. But most of our consumers interface with us uh, on our website, ehealth.com. Scott, you know, we've talked to a lot of people about how to make healthcare cheaper in the United States. And a lot of people say that ultimately, uh, given what's going on in government and given the fact that Medicaid and Medicare can't negotiate for drug prices and things like that, uh, it's very difficult to see the government take the lead on this. It will have to come from corporations uh, like J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway that have sort of made moves about having their own healthcare system. It, it has to sort of lie with them to create the competitive pressure. So are you seeing any sort of corporation supporting what you do and making moves that can materially lower healthcare costs in the United States? Well, that's, that's a three plus trillion dollar question. 17 or 18% of our entire economy is spent on healthcare. So, and it's, and it's growing faster than GDP. So, you know, it's a, it's a major fiscal issue today, and it's growing and getting more challenging. So you're right to focus on it. And there aren't easy answers, but I do see the Aetna-CVS merger as a progressive, constructive step that I think will improve access. Uh, you know, for many uh, conditions, going into a hospital is just so punishingly expensive. And if you have a high deductible, which many Americans have, and there's still 27 million Americans that have no insurance, and so they're going into emergency rooms uh, for treatments that could more easily be handled in, in med checks or perhaps even uh, at a pharmacy. And that could be where we see that Aetna-CVS merger evolve. So we think uh, providing more access uh, will make healthcare more accessible uh, to more Americans. And ultimately, that will, on the margin, bring down cost. Scott Flanders, thank you so much for being with us. Scott Flanders, Chief Executive Officer at eHealth, coming to us from Mountain View, California, uh, talking about what the Obamacare enrollment has been like way down, uh, and just in general with how to provide a tool for people to better shop for uh, insurance programs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.